Welcome. I'm Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a hematologist oncologist, and I'm associate professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. In my professional life, I see patients, I teach trainees, and I do research in healthcare policy. This is Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and you're listening to season three. On this week's episode, he's been called on Twitter a bunch of names recently, a Big Mac researcher, a comedian cardiologist, and guilty of Twitter ambushes. That's right, none other than Prof. Daryl Francis, Daryl Francis from Imperial College London. He's here via Zoom to talk about recent developments in cardiology, COVID and the heart, and the magical, mystical Vasepa. You won't want to miss this discussion. And first, I have a monologue where I talk about a few topics. You won't want to miss it. So stay tuned. This is a great episode with Daryl Francis. If you like this podcast and want more content, follow me on Twitter at vprasadmdmph. Check out the YouTube channel, vinayprasadmdmph. Patreon backers will get access to the slides for lectures I give on Plenary Session. Want to hear from us? Email us your question at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. First up, I came across a tweet recently which caught my attention. This was by a gentleman who practices in India, and it's about a lecture they received from a U.S. oncologist. And here's what it was about, multiple myeloma, a cancer that many of the listeners here will know how to treat. And here's what one of the people who treat multiple myeloma say. This is their treatment strategy. It's broken out how I treat high-risk myeloma. And it says, do you have one Q? three copies or more? Do you have one Q, four copies or more? Do you have a 414 translocation, 1416, 1420, or 17P deletion? And if you had one Q, three copies, your induction was VRD. Makes sense. Your maintenance was VRD. If you had one Q, four copies, your induction was KRD. Your maintenance was KRD. If you had 414, your induction was DARA RVD and then Velcade maintenance. If you had 1416 translocation, you got KRD induction and then Carfilzomib and Revlimid maintenance. If you had 414, you got KRD, Carfilzomib, Revlimid maintenance. And if you had 17P, of course, DARA RVD with Velcade and Revlimid maintenance. And in response to this, someone on the internet who's quite wise, said, excellent evidence-free table. Someone else said, I love this tweet so much. And someone else added, three copies of 1Q give RVD, but four copies give KRD? What the said another gentleman. And indeed, the entire table is what the What is this table? This is a table that is just invented. I was telling a colleague about this table. This colleague is an expert in multiple myeloma. And the colleague said, well, it gives the illusion of personalized medicine because you have something different based on every high-risk genetic mutation. Unfortunately, there's no evidence that supports any of the conclusions made in this. So it is, in fact, a crazy suggestion. It is the crazy guidelines And what strikes me as fascinating is how something like this is actually put forward in the world. To to really validate this, one would require multiple randomized control trials. And what it's really doing here is very clear. It's using more expensive and more drugs that don't have robust evidence in these settings 
to create combinations, quadruplets that don't have robust evidence in these settings, and maintenance schedules that have no randomization to ever prove that those maintenance strategies are beneficial in these or other settings. It's an entire fairy tale. You'd have to do maybe 15 different randomized trials or 20 different randomized trials to try to prove or disprove this fairy tale. But this is not how you practice oncology. This is the island of Dr. Moreau stuff. You can't just hang a shingle out and start giving people any combos you want. If that's the standard, why even do trials at all? We just develop drugs. The moment it has a response rate over 5%, we say, docs, you can give whatever the hell you want. And I think, sadly, this kind of promulgation is no different than suggesting that we all stick our heads in the sand and practice 19th century medicine. It really is no different. It's just the illusion of progress, the illusion that someone has taken a lot of thought and is doing something on the cutting edge. But you're probably not benefiting patients. You're probably running up the tab. This is indefensible. I mean, I don't want to say the M word, the malpractice word, but at some point when people practice in a renegade fashion that is based on nothing and not in line with what other people are doing, the M word might apply. I don't know. All I know is this is one crazy slide. So in other words, if you are listening to an expert speaker and they say, this is how I treat, and I'm the only one who thought of this, you might want to say, let's back it up a little bit. Let's get some studies to support this. And maybe let's get some consensus. Even if it's from people who aren't good at appraising evidence, at least it's a step in the right direction, not just how I have invented a semi-personalized regimen, which I think is really quite telling. So that's all I have to say about that. Next, there's something wrong with a lot of people on the internet. And that is, they're really uncomfortable with having a broad, far-ranging discussion of COVID-19 and what we ought to do about it. This is an unprecedented policy challenge, and there is not a single person out there who knows all the answers. In fact, there's a key question that could be asked, which is, did we do the right thing at every step along the way? Should we have locked down when we did? What do we mean by lockdown? That varies place to place. Should we have provided the media coverage we did? Because the media coverage, independent of lockdown, changed behavior probably a lot more than lockdown. By that, I mean 80% of behavior may have been changed by people choosing to shelter in place. And then the added change from the policy to suspend businesses may have been a, a delta 20% or maybe something different. But we have to recognize that not all the behavioral change was due to a mandate. Some of it was due to fear. So there's two sort of mechanisms in play there. But the question, of course, is did that sort of stuff, that messaging, that mandate, those policies, which vary globally, vary place to place, even within this country, vary in terms of timing um, and have different sort of baseline adherence from uh, the population because of the different ways in which people were fearful or not fearful, followed instructions or didn't follow instructions. Um, is that a net good or is that a net bad? That's a philosophical question, and it's a question of a recent Monk debate, which I listened to, which I thought was quite provocative, with Jay Bott and Sten Vermund. Um, I thought it was a good debate. It was an interesting debate. And I, I think the true answer is something that um, you know someone on the internet pointed out, which is, one, it's too soon to tell. And that is the right answer, which is going to take decades to tell, because many of the downsides of sort of putting society on its head, bringing everything to a halt, 
many of those downsides will not be fully realized or bore for a long time to come. And the downsides include changes in mental health, increased suicidality, people who may have had preventable or reversible diseases or diagnoses that died at home instead of coming into the hospital, changes in education patterns for children, which will shorten their lives most surely, particularly the poorer kids who won't be able to compensate on the back end, changes in crime that may stem from changes in education, and a whole bunch of other changes. This has literally ripped the fabric of society. It's a catastrophic generational change. It'll take 50 years, potentially, in all the full effects, 100 years, potentially, 20 years, maybe on the soon end, you'd have some sort of idea. It's going to be a really far-reaching thing. And to answer the question of did it, in fact, do what it needed to do to prevent hospitals from overflowing, which did occur in some places, but not in many others? Did it actually buy us time to get us to an effective vaccine? Did what we do minimize the years of life lost from what follows? Or, ironically, might a different strategy have minimized years of life lost? That's a very tough question. No one researcher is going to be able to put that all together, Okay. It's a question we really have to ask, and we have to be open-minded to hearing different points of view. And I think what troubles me is that on Twitter and many other forums and places, people already believe they know the answer, and the answer they reach is ironically deeply wedded to the political party they support. That is just really crazy. I mean, it's fine to be that way, but then you have to say that you're not an intellectual and you're not an academic. And you are not really open to sort of asking these questions. If you really have a strong prior on this, I think you're going to have to say those things. I'm not an intellectual. I'm not an academic. I don't care about what the data shows. I already know the answer. And it's tied to the political party I happen to support. I mean, I think you have to say that you're not at the level of the academy because you're not. I mean, it's a question that we need to have a little bit more internal equipoise for so we can do the right studies and ask the right question and learn and potentially course correct. If that means course correcting on when and how to reopen schools, when and how to close them, what to do with colleges, what to do in the spring, what to do if a vaccine is only modestly effective, what to do if not everyone takes the vaccine. These are things we're going to need to course correct. And it can only be done if people who are intellectuals who want to study this rigorously do not enter this discussion with a strong preconceived notion. I myself do not have a strong preconceived notion. I have tried very early on in the pandemic when I felt as if one side was being demonized. And that, of course, is the side where there are fewer intellectuals on, which is the side that the lockdowns may have done more harm than good or we have overreacted. That side is the side that in the academy doesn't really have too many allies. They've got Jay Bott. They've got John Ioannidis. They've got some other people who have argued perhaps not all of those things, but a little bit in that direction. And many of them were stomped by an online furor. And and so I and uh, Jeff Flyer wrote an op-ed where we argued that this is a moment where we need to be open to listening to what people have to say, not shut them out. Anyway, I, I, I still think that it is a mistake to shut out people in a situation where nobody really knows for sure, and people may be cocky, they may think they know, but that's not an honest intellectual position because the type of data one would need to muster to show one or the other, it, 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 one, you don't have that data yet because you don't have enough follow-up. 
if you look very early on at, um, you know, carotid endarterectomy or stenting the carotid, of course, one looks better than the other and it's not the surgery arm, but with time they cross, you know, very likely that could happen here too. You know, I'm not saying it will or won't. I'm just saying that how can anyone draw a conclusion very early on if, if that's one of the arguments that one side is making, uh, that there will be long-term deleterious consequences you have not fully anticipated. Um, it's difficult. So to, I think you really need to be more equipoise, more open to a discussion. So the reason I say that I'm, I'm just shocked by people. So in that vein, you know, I tweeted a joke a while back, which was the Iceland study showed um, an infection fatality rate of 0.3. And then I said, that's funny because uh, Satan, John Ioannidis, had an infection fatality rate of 0.27. Um, now I see that Carl Hennigan and colleagues at Oxford um, with uh, the Center for Evidence-Based Medicine, they are saying that the sort of implied IFR in England is sort of closer to three-tenths of one percent, which is similar to Iceland, similar to what John Yonides offered in his meta-analysis. And, you know, people on the internet, they can't even handle to this idea. And what's the idea? The idea is, I'm not even saying the IFR is that. Obviously, uh, only a fool believes that the IFR is a fixed value, like the gravitational constant, like God has given us the IFR. There is no such thing. An IFR is a product of the ages and comorbidities of the people being infected, the facility and apparatus of the healthcare system and the presence or absence of treatments. So when you start having things like dex dexamethasone, you're going to bend the IFR. When hospitals are overwhelmed, it's going to go up. If it hits a lot of people who are older and frailer, it's going to go up. If it hits nursing homes and liquidates nursing homes, like it's a disproportionate amount of deaths have been in nursing homes or long-term care facilities, uh, IFR is going to go up. It's not a fixed number, but on the other hand, it is a number that is included in the discussion as it is one of the parameters in that great big question mark of what were the harms up front, what did we do, and what are the potential back-end harms, and what have we done? Um, and, and, and that includes to some degree the IFR. And the reason I tweeted my tweet was not that I particularly care about the IFR. I don't. And um, it was because I wanted to draw attention to the fact that um, – you know, you demonize this guy, really, because you think his .27 was like some right-wing conspiracy to re-elect Trump or something. Um, the reality is he might genuinely believe it's .27. And you know what? There are other people who are kind of offering numbers not that far. .3 is not that far from .27. Um, and, and you're not demonizing them. You can't demonize somebody for tossing a number out that's well within sort of the acceptable range of what someone would think. And somebody pushed back at me and said, well, the right number is a little bit higher. Uh, this is a low ball number. I'm like, that's fine. That is totally fine. That's the discussion to have. That's the discussion to have. The discussion not to have is to say, if you're below 0.3, you got to shoot you in the head and you don't get to participate in the debate. That's a crazy, that's crazy talk. This is something that nobody knows the answer to. These, everyone is approaching the problem with a different set of priors, different set of instincts. Clinical doctors have different instincts than epidemiologists, to be honest with you. Clinical doctors have the instinct of knowing very viscerally that our models and our equations and the best laid plans of mice and men off go astray because we've had models and equations that are supposed to tell me exactly how much free water deficit the person has. Then you start using these models and equations and they don't always work. We have that experience over and over in our career and thus people when faced with early COVID models, they may have been skeptical, particularly if they had a lot of clinical experience, particularly if they had a lot of experience with how models can lead us astray. 
So that's okay to bring their perspective. They may have been skeptical. They may also fear more than the rest of us what tinkering with the fabric of society does. Does it foment civil unrest? Does it increase suicidality? Does it lead to people dying because they're having an MI and they're scared to call the doctor? They're scared to go in. So people have different perspectives here. I actually don't know the answer to the question, but I think that the commitment to answer it in a rigorous way was abandoned by a large faction of academics. And some of that abandonment was due to the simple fact that they don't like this president. And you know what? Not a lot of people do. I was like, I don't know. I mean, not a lot of people in the academy like this guy. So it's understandable. But just because somebody is an objectionable person doesn't mean they can't occasionally stumble on a correct answer. It's not wrong simply because they say it. Because they say it, because they say many things that are wrong, many things that they say are wrong. But simply because they say it doesn't mean it's wrong. That's the distinction that must be drawn. And, you know, we need people like Jay Bott and John at the table to participate in this discussion because it is a big policy discussion that affects many aspects of society. And it was understandable that early in the pandemic, everyone was scared. Nobody knew which of our loved ones were going to die. We all had that sort of visceral fear. It was understandable to demonize somebody who you think their ideas could potentially kill your loved ones. My goodness, you know, it's understandable to demonize it. Now we've had six months to sleep on it a little bit. Perhaps we've reached a state where we can say, you know, maybe we did, you know, throw a few too many rocks at him. You know, the guy did a meta-analysis where he said IFR is 0.27, and and now Carl Hennigan says 0.3, the Iceland study says 0.3, many other studies say higher, and many pooled estimates say higher, right? But what he's saying is he's not saying 0.0001, you know, he's saying 0.27, he's in sort of an acceptable human, you know, we can argue here kind of range, and we did kind of stone the guy. So, you know, what I'm saying is that we have to do better uh, in what follows. And I think, hopefully, that some of this tension can be alleviated if the person at the top of the country is not someone who provokes such a visceral reaction in so many people. Perhaps that might help things a little bit. But I am a little bit concerned with how the Academy has handled this situation. You do not have to agree with somebody 100% to acknowledge their right to argue for their position, nor to engage with them. And as uncertainty increases, the ability to tolerate listening to ideas that do not fit your gut worldview should also increase. You know, it's in the cases where uncertainty is low. Uh, if somebody wants to argue with you that we shouldn't, um, we shouldn't put a tourniquet on someone who's exsanguinating, you might have little patience for that argument because we know that if you don't put the tourniquet, not going to be so good. If someone wants to argue we shouldn't stand open an artery and STEMI, you might want to argue with them. But, you know, in this case, there's a lot more uncertainty. So it's really important for a committed academic to expose themselves to a range of views, to not answer a question before it can be answered, to permit people to come to the table and participate in the dialogue or listen to the dialogue from people, even if you disagree, especially when uncertainty is high. On that positive note, we'll switch to the next topic. I was recently on the Z Dog MD show, and I encourage people to check out that podcast. And Z Dog asked me, 
a lot of tough questions. And we ended up talking about med bikini, where if you're interested in that topic, you can listen to that podcast episode. It's also on YouTube. And we also talked about Norman Wang. And I guess I wanted to talk a little bit more about Norman Wang in this episode, because I feel like I didn't take the opportunity to say what I think at the moment. And I do regret it to some degree because this is the case of Norman Wang, the EP director of um, the University of Pittsburgh, who published an article which was called a white paper. Some people on the internet said that that itself was racist. But to be fair, white paper is a moniker used to describe something that is a policy forum article. Um, it is not, I do not believe in and of itself meant to be a racist or provocative statement to call something a white paper. It's just sort of a thought piece to provoke discussion and debate. Um, and his paper took a view that I believe was, in fact, a little bit critical of uh, the constitutionality, the legal ability uh, for entities that receive federal funds to engage in affirmative action on the basis of race. I believe that is an apt characterization of his view. So it was a long article. I forget exactly, maybe 15 pages article. I had the chance to read it in full um, before it was retracted. It was doing a damn fine job of what most academic articles do, which is no one was reading it and it was being forgotten when someone on the internet resurrected it in this moment of, of pan outrage and, and realized that it was critical of affirmative action and that they were more than likely a supportive of affirmative action, as in fact I am, which is what I'm going to come to in a little bit in this podcast. Uh, I am a big supporter of it. I believe that it ought to be constitutional and it is certainly necessary and 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 legitimate as a way to further the interests of a more inclusive and 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 better society, but we can come to that. Um, but this person, you know, didn't like it and they they hit a hit a top spin on the on the tweet and a lot of people, the mob formed and then it got a lot of vigorous criticism and it was retracted. And uh, I still have yet to read a, a formulation of what exactly was wrong about it. I read the article. Um, some people said that the quotes were misquotes. They were not consistent with what people said or meant. Um, I read the quotes. I didn't think that anything struck me as odd. I looked up a few. They seemed accurate um, or within the, the within the range of how one could quote someone. We all know that, you know, you don't quote two people who feel differently about an issue will not quote someone in the same context or meaning, but doesn't mean one use of the quote is um, fraudulent or rises to the level of retraction. It just means that people can quote people differently. And in fact, you can quote someone and use their quote in a way that may not be consistent with what they later say their quote meant. That's also sort of an acceptable part of scholarship, I think we have to acknowledge. So I looked at the quotes. I didn't find any problems. I looked at the the legalistic argument, and this is a legalistic argument that follows the Supreme Court rulings on affirmative action, which we have to be honest, this is a right of center court. This is the Roberts Court. It has veered away from some of the earlier precedents in affirmative action. It is veering towards the direction that many fear that it will, in fact, soon prevent the ability of entities that receive some federal funding, again, some federal funding is a key part of this, to use race as a consideration among other considerations. That's what some people fear it's going. And that is sort of the right of center uh, view and perhaps the trajectory of this court. And I think Norman Wang did accurately, as far as I can tell from re reading sort of many um, constitutional law books, which is sort of many people know is sort of my, my hobby horse. It's what I wish I had done with my life sometimes because I think, I think I'd be good at it. I like to think critically and argue. Um, so, you know, so I, I read a lot of constitutional law and I follow a lot of the constitutional law podcasts. And so I think he was sort of articulating the, the philosophy of thought that, you know, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, uh, Alito, Thomas, Roberts, who are the five in the majority, they may have. I think he was articulating the legal precedents that led to that. 
And um, I think lawyers who have looked at this have commented that they don't believe there's anything overtly incorrect about his interpretation of the law. So put it all together, you have a paper where, you know, he may have used quotations differently than what the people who said those quotes later felt. But again, that's something that we generally accept. He has summarized the law in sort of a right of center way. He's reached a conclusion that I think is a conclusion that many of us, um, particularly those of us who are left-leaning, would disagree with, that affirmative action does not serve its stated goals, that it may run counter, or at least how we're implementing it may run counter to the current legal thinking as set by this Supreme Court, which again is a right of center Supreme Court. Um, you know, he articulated all that and and he seemed as if he was in line with sort of the right of center uh, Supreme Court. So, you know, do I agree with him? No, uh, my view is different, which I believe is that, um, you know, I think that the Constitution uh, and and the legal precedents around affirmative action give institutions that do receive federal funds a lot of discretion in how they choose to use race, uh, among other factors, as a consideration to construct classes, um, to to uh, give people opportunity. I believe that there is a strong sort of utilitarian good that comes from this because we have a society steeped in injustice with the impetus and momentum of long centuries of injustice. And you do need to give institutions the tools to bend that back. And, um, you know, somebody said, but, you know, can't they use income and socioeconomics instead of race? And, and that's, in fact, what some right of center thinkers think. And I think that, you know, I would support them doing that. However, I don't think on the legal question, which is does the does the law prohibit the consideration of race? That's a legal question. I don't think it prohibits it. So they can use socioeconomic status and race among other considerations. I think the law is in desperate need of a shift on the court and a shift in the precedent to move it a little left of center to permit institutions like Harvard, like Yale, like many leading institutions, to do what they believe is necessary in order to right a lot of wrongs, in order to create a more fair and just world. And so I'm actually left of center. I disagree with Norman Wang. However, what really troubled me is I disagree with him, but he should be permitted to have this opinion. His article was peer-reviewed. It was published we do not yet have evidence it meets criteria for retraction. I look forward to reading what people say uh, was wrong about it and why it should have been retracted. I believe it was retracted under heavy pressure from people on social media who dislike his, 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 his destination. They dislike his conclusion. Guess what? I dislike his conclusion too, okay? But I'm not sure it, it actually meets the criteria of retraction. And if it in fact doesn't, that's a problematic thing because... We cannot wield the weapon of retraction merely because we do not like where someone ended up. We can only wield it if they, in fact, commit one of the several offenses, short list of offenses um, that merit retraction. If they use quotes in a way that the speaker of the quote didn't quite like, but the quote is technically accurate, and they interpret it in a slightly different way, they use it to build a different argument, that's unfortunately within the realm of acceptable academic inquiry. If they accurately summarize cases, if they side with the, the 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 five justices on the court that are right of center, you know, we don't have to like it, but I think we have to live with it. Um, and, and I think we don't do ourselves a service if we try to stifle it this way. 
You read the article, you don't like it. Actually, there's several tactics. I mean, let's talk about the tactics of how you combat a bad idea, a poisonous idea, which is that affirmative action should be blocked by law. And there's some related ideas that were problematic, which is that there is a um, mismatch hypothesis, which the social science literature is deeply torn about, and all these other sort of empirical arguments about does it actually work? Um, and then there's the legal arguments about is it actually just? Is it um, acceptable? Is it alignment with a prior prior rulings? Um, there, there are all these arguments. Um, how do you combat sort of that argument? I mean, one, one way to combat it is um, you don't have to respond to everything in general. When you read something you don't like, you don't have to respond. And in fact, an article like this is probably doing a damn fine job of fitting in the, the best response is no response because ain't no one reading this article, man. No one is reading this long ass article in this boring ass journal. No one's reading it, man. No one is reading this article. We have a hard enough time to read articles that have to do with our practice. You think we got time to read 15 page articles by electrophysiologists on what they think about affirmative action? If you wanna read that, you'd rather read an article, you'd rather read a book about the Supreme Court, read about the history of it. You don't wanna read this guy's article. It probably wasn't getting read much, I'll be honest with you. And then people are looking I think to some degree, to find wins. And they found this, and it was an opportunity to prove a point, which is that we feel differently. And guess what? I feel differently too. I am with you. I'm with you. We do need to have it, and we need to permit it. And the, the court needs to shift to the left to make this a better and fair and just world. Um, okay, so so you see it. Um, but then the next thing is by by stripping it, by burying it, do you really help the cause? I worry. I deeply worry that just as the majority of the court is leaning that direction, the majority of Americans may be leaning that direction. The majority of people in cardiology may be leaning that direction. And now what you've done is you've told them that it is unacceptable for them to talk about this idea, to say their point of view, to publish this idea. They're not going to get feedback. They're going to get um, de de demoted as a fellowship program director. They're going to have their articles retracted if they dare offer this idea. Um, I worry you actually give it gasoline. You drive it underground and give it gasoline. Perhaps the better thing to do is to diffuse it, to explain to them why they're wrong, to patiently argue back, to say that you see where they're coming from and why it might be initially seductive um, to believe that these policies are not necessary and do not uh, accomplish the good. But upon further review, they're incorrect for these reasons. Because what we're really arguing about is not whether or how we ought to have the policy. It's whether the Constitution forbids forbids institutions from doing what they believe they ought to do, which may be decentralized and different. It's whether or not you forbid experimentation using this consideration among other considerations. It's not whether or not you mandate doing it. It's, it's sort of, a, it's sort of a, a different question legally, I believe. I'm not a legal scholar, but again, it's just a hobby of mine just to follow this. Um, uh, so anyway, so I think... The other thing is, I can't imagine that, I mean, retracting an article is not an easy thing to do. How is it getting retracted so quickly, especially when the author themselves believes that it ought not to be retracted, which is what all accounts say, that he did not consent to retraction. If the authors don't consent to retraction, there needs to be sort of a formal process to adjudicate those. It can't just be what a thousand people, 10,000 people on Twitter think. And those 10,000 people on Twitter, they happen to be left of center, as I am, man. I'm a Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders kind of left of center person on this issue and other issues. Um, but it can't just be what a lot of us think. We have to live in a world where we make peace with the fact that not everyone thinks what we think. And the goal of scholarship is to persuade. 
And clubbing someone and censoring them and stripping their title doesn't persuade. And I think there is another thing that people haven't discussed, which is deeply problematic, which is that um, it is likely the case that he has accepted his punishment because um, he may not be a combative type of person. And so he has accepted this licking. But imagine you did this to somebody who was combative, who had friends on the right, who knew some of these conservative lawyers, right of center lawyers. It's not going to end pretty. They can litigate this, I suspect. They can litigate it to the University of Pittsburgh. They can litigate it. Um, and uh, I don't think you want to roll that dice on whether or not you think you'll win a litigation that this could article could have been retracted. I think it might blow up in your face. So if he does want to litigate, does want to litigate whether or not he should have been demoted, whether or not his article should have been involuntarily or against his consent retracted, I mean, he may have a good case there. So what am I trying to say here? On the issue at stake, my assessment of the literature is that one could sort of restructure a few Supreme Court rulings just a little bit and take the court a little bit left and we would be in a much better place that permits colleges and universities to utilize this question, race, as one of other components in the selection of candidates to create a better or fairer world. I am a believer that we ought to move in that direction. Norman Wang may not be a believer. He may be a believer that the current Supreme Court rulings and the current direction of the court is in the right direction and that we ought to curb the use of this. Um, I would disagree with Norman Wang every day of the week. And if anyone wanted to debate, I'd be happy to debate Norman Wang on this issue. And I would bring my legal consigliere to help me on the debate as I prepare. However, I believe that Norman Wang's view is a view shared by many people, potentially 50% or more of people in this country because his view is popular, because his view is in line with what many people think and the Supreme Court may believe, because there are no technical reasons for retraction, I believe that it would be unwise to use the tools of retraction, to use the tools of demotion, the tools of censorship on him in this situation, in this problem, because I believe it will not lead to a durable victory. It is a Pyrrhic victory. It is a victory that is going to be illusory. The idea is going to be driven down, but it's not going to go away. You're not changing hearts and minds. You're making them potentially more angry. Potentially, you're actually making this situation so that he has more allegiance to his idea than he did before. And others may have allegiance to his idea than, than they did before. So I guess I am concerned with how it was handled. I think... Mob activity on Twitter is something that's been emerging as an emergent phenomenon more and more here. I think it is problematic. Institutions have to have leadership that resists mob activity. One of the ways you resist the mob is to provide a due process, which would have been a proper series of committees to evaluate whether or not this ought to be retracted with people who have diverse ideological views, which the university and all universities still should encourage to some degree because not everyone has to agree with us in the university. Um, and, and it should have been gone through a proper process. And, and if we keep playing this game, trying to burn down somebody, um, every time they say something that we dislike, um, we're going to be in a bad place. Someday they're going to try to burn you down for something you feel, and, and, and that's one. Two, I do not believe it's actually effective. It's not the way you actually change people's minds. And I think... The empirical data here, I don't want to get too much on a tangent about 
social science. But I mean, I think there are limitations to the empirical data. And thus, what I believe the sort of core question is, is whether or not universities ought to be able to perform different experiments to try to work out what's best. And the litigation concerns whether or not universities will have one hand tied behind their back. They'll be prohibited from experimenting in one in, in one dimension among many dimensions. And I think that's an unwise thing to do when you are an empiricist, as I am, I think. So just strictly from an empirical point of view, that would be unwise. I also think there's a lot of moral reasons to believe that this is a problem we ought to address. And if this tool is is leverageable to address it, that taking race into account among other considerations would improve injustice, then we ought to be able to do it. And and the law, like much law, I think is flexible and, and can be crafted. And there are a lot of thoughtful left-leaning scholars that can give us the tools we need to do this. So I disagree with Norman Wang. Um, however, I disagree with the response to Norman Wang, Norman Wang probably should have had his paper ignored. That was the best strategy. Absent that, I think we could rebut it. You could write a really eloquent rebuttal. Um, somebody, somebody could do what I still have done, I think, a bad job of, but somebody could do a really good job of actually explaining what does he believe, maybe even more succinctly and better than he does, and then why he's wrong. Um, I think that would be great. And I think there's so many tremendous left-leaning um uh, constitutional lawyers who could help in that. And it would be a terrific paper. I mean, I think you have to persuade people and you have to sort of change minds. And, um, you know, you can't engage in, in, in these sort of really, really rough tactics. Um, and I think it, it will be interesting to see whether or not that paper meets criteria for retraction. Although, you know, I read it in full and I, I didn't see anything that does. And the other thing I'd say is if you really want to have an opinion about this issue um, and you haven't read the paper in full, you know, only you know the truth there. You got to stop right there. You got to actually, I mean, come on. You got to actually read things in full. Um, you, if you want to have an opinion on Med Bikini, which I talked about with Z-Dog, you can check that out there. I'm not going to rehash that. Um, you got to read the paper in full, which I did again. Um, if you don't read something in full, uh, you, you, you're, you're really not doing a good job of participating in the academy. And uh, you flunk, in my opinion. Um, you flunk because you, you really ought not to have your, a strong opinion. I guess... My biggest regret about the Norman Wang situation is that in the heat of the moment, I didn't articulate my point of view, which is I don't agree with the guy, but it shouldn't be retracted. At least I'm not persuaded that it ought to be unless you can provide some strong evidence that you've not yet uh, publicized, um, something in between. And I think that that's something that I should have said. And, and many people who agree with me, who slid into my DMs, who slid into my emails, who felt the same way, who read the paper in full, they should have said too. But we all, to some degree, were intimidated by the mob. And I think that's a mistake. And so we have to try to be better. And um, people in the mob have to do better than just to participate in a blind rage mob. They should actually try to interrogate the, the source material and see if the stated or proffered wrong is true and whether or not the paper really does meet the criteria for the punishment um, that is stated. So on that positive note, we'll talk about another controversial cardiologist, but this is a different type of controversy, Daryl Francis. You know, in as we got ready to air this interview, I noticed a lot of people on the internet went after Daryl Francis hard. He had been critical of Vesepa, and you know, there are a lot of Amarin Pharmaceutical investors who are a little disappointed with a recent court ruling, and they are angry with people who are critical of Vesepa. And so people called Daryl Francis a failed PI, and indeed he is failed. He couldn't even get stenting to improve exercise time with chronic stable angina because he was 
dumb enough to use a placebo or sham controlled procedure. <laughs> Shouldn't he know that no control is the best control there? Daryl Francis, he's only a wizard with numbers and he can easily spot faulty or fabricated research. So he's a Big Mac researcher, as this person called him, Big Mac, which I think people who really do enjoy Big Macs may be critical of, but he's a Big Mac researcher. He's a comedian cardiologist. He's just out there telling jokes, as you'll see in this podcast episode. He's just making jokes. He's not getting to the heart of things, but what you realize is that he's operating at a very high level. So you're not going to want to miss this interview. It's a spectacular interview, and we have it in full here on Plenary Session. So on that positive note, here's the interview. All right, I'm back in Plenary Session, joined via Zoom by Dr. Daryl Francis, Professor Francis. Professor Francis is Professor of Cardiology in Imperial College London. He is a practicing interventional cardiologist. He is infamous for a clinical trial called Orbita, of which he was- I had nothing to do with that trial. Uh, <laughs> Russia did it, it all. Was, it, it was Russia. I helped her design it, but in my mind, it was going to be positive. Mm-hmm. And then people say, Daryl, you like, you know, you're a skeptical of everything, you don't believe anything, yeah, yeah, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but you asked to be a nice guy because you showed angioplasty work. So it's fine. That was my plan. It was going to be all positive. Uh, so I don't know what she did, but it was negative. It was. Well, that, yeah. that only means that you were not really committed to angioplasty. If you were, it would have been positive. So, Dr. No, I still do it. <laughs> you still, I, still I know, do it. I know, I, I follow you. And yeah. people say, why do you do it? How can you do angioplasty? And so, well, I like doing it, and patients want to have it. And they're so, happy when it's yeah. done. Yeah, and if you don't do it, they're unhappy. they get really angry. Yeah, of course. So, <laughs> Uh, you know, we do it. So yeah. they say, how can you consent them? And so I've got a brilliant answer for that. Yeah. Um, uh, we're going to look at the artery and it's narrow. And what we're going to do is open up the artery with a little stent. And if they look at all hesitant as to why this might be yeah. pushing bits of metal in people's yeah. idea, okay. And it will increase the blood flow to the heart. <laughs> and you go, oh, fantastic. Nobody ever asks, is that good? Yeah, no, that's not. <laughs> so everyone is happy now. Everyone yeah. is happy. I just never, because I, I, I used to say, yeah. it, it, this isn't a life or death thing. Yes, you but it'll make it you feel better. Thing. Yeah. Make you feel better. Now I bit more gentle about saying that. Yeah. <laughs> now, now you just say so, clearly that uh, who wants it, it part, who wants it obstructed? Why don't you want it open? You want it open. You want it open. Yeah. It's, I mean, if, uh, honestly, if I had a stenosis in my coronary artery and I had angina, I'd want to stent. Yeah, of course. That's what I mean. But I'm is... the wrong person. Yeah. You don't ask me because I've done a generation of assuming it must help mortality a little bit at least. Yes. Uh, and it mu- obviously must relieve angina. I mean, that's ridiculous. Um, so however much we see data, even if coming with our own hands, suggesting otherwise, it's too late. What you've got to do is ask the next generation who just come out of medical school and they'll go, yeah, okay. So it's a palliative procedure and its effect is smaller than we thought. Why is this a big controversy? You know, so that, that's the interesting thing. Yes, in order um, for, for progress wrong, to happen. In, it's too late for us. Yeah, it's too late. In order for progress to happen, you need. that's why we retire. We have to retire. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, we, we would be still bloodletting. We, if we would, uh, yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. yeah. 
So, Dr. Francis, this wasn't the question. Sorry. No, it's a pleasure to have you on. You know, I think (laughs) listeners of this podcast uh, obviously will follow you on Twitter for the fantastic tutorials um, and and great sense of 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 humor. Um, And uh, and we have so much to talk about. So let's just jump right in. Fantastic. No problem. Dr. Francis, you um, you know, you're increasingly known for for a mathematical and skeptical view of the world. You you want to be convinced of things. You don't just yeah. accept claims at face value. No, because most things aren't true. You know, mm-hmm. most things you, most brilliant ideas turn out not to work. And if you set up a business, um, most businesses fail. Yes. That doesn't mean you shouldn't set up businesses. Right. That's absolutely right. You just can't tell which ones are going to succeed. So we need a way of winnowing out which wonderful ideas uh, turn out to work and which ones don't. And they have to, uh, in in kind of normal life, things have to really work. Um, You know, you're in a building. And that building, you're in like a 40-story ATAD tower uh, building. That was designed by an engineer on a pad of paper on a coffee table. Yes. And then they built it. And it stands up. You go into the building, you don't ask. If we made a building out of clinical medicine, (laughs) it would have collapsed before we got to the (laughs) turn. Oh, of course. people just say things. I think it's this. In my opinion, it's that. Whatever. Nobody has to know. If you make an engineering claim, yes, and it doesn't work, yes, you're an idiot. Yes, you, know? you pay if the I make price. Make a medical claim, and other people can't reproduce it. I'm a genius. Yes, I'm the only one who can do this magical thing. So that, that we have a big problem that our system is sort of stacked against uh, the correct answer. Uh, how do we know that carbon has an atomic mass of twelve? Well. Because people were measuring it, and those people had no motivation other than to get the correct answer. Correct. No other motivation. Yes. No other motivation. But but, um, but we have other uh, motivations. It, it, we have motivation. So if the guy, if it was a competition to say whose private practice could get the highest molecular mass for carbon, they'll yes. be like, this is 17, 39, come to Francis Industries. Our carbon has got an atomic weight of 180. It's the heaviest carbon you've ever seen in your life. <laughs> the best carbon. The best carbon. It's the best. You're going to get so sick of how heavy this carbon is. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's because of so much of our professional identity and our personal finances are intertwined, particularly on my mm. side of the pond, where that carbon, a yes. little bit higher, that's uh, more yeah. food on the table and, at dinner. And, you know, it's the same here. And I don't think it's a, so much a money thing. I used to think it was a money thing. Yes. But actually, I think it is because we can't separate, I am good at doing this procedure or running that test versus this procedure or test delivers what it says on the box. Yes, yes, yes. So because I spent a lot of time learning how to... Snake that wire through that narrow artery. Yeah. 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 And I, I think I'm good. I'm magical at it. You know, as I say, I'm, yeah. you know... It's a, tech, uh, it's a physical skill. at it. Yes. Uh, but, uh, well, I say actually, I'm below average at it, but don't, don't, don't <laughs> no one can ever be below average. Well, there, there are people who do more of it than me. So I've got colleagues like LCC Malik, who's like glowing radioactive because he's in the lab all the time. Yeah. He must be. He must be better, better at than it. me, unless yeah. he's stupid, you know. Yeah. Right. Uh, but I'm good enough. <laughs> yes. Um, but whenever I say I must be like a below average, I suppose. Uh, well, and then they go, how can you say that? So, well, you must be above average. Oh, yes, of course I am. Well, there you go then. So yes. <laughs> you've got someone who thinks they're above average. But we mix up how good we are at doing the thing versus how good the thing is 
at delivering the healthcare benefits. I think that's well put. I also think that part of the, the sort of, I call it the methamphetamine of being a doctor, you do something, you meet the patient afterwards, they say, my God, I feel better. Thank you so much. And then you wed that with a little bit of financial stimulus. And that is, a, <laughs> that's methamphetamine. You can't get enough of that good stuff. I mean, we all have it. We all have it. Whatever you do in medicine, yeah. you have yeah, done no, things. People people swear to you that they feel better and you feel so good about yeah. yourself. That's why I went to this job. medical school. Yeah. Uh, I walked onto the ward, and firstly, not in medical school, as a doctor, the house officer, and the patient goes, thank you so much, fantastic, and things like box of chocolates, and things like having so much better, you know, I've never seen this lady before, <laughs> I don't know who her husband is, it's my first day, yeah. <laughs> but you get this gratitude, you get this gratitude, yes, and it's, it's, it's why we're in the best job in the world, yes, uh, but, you know, if people are basically just alive at the end, yes. they somehow want to give credit to us, particularly in, in Europe where we're not very litigious. Yes, uh, yes. I think if things are different might be in North America simply because healthcare isn't universally available. Yes. So but if your doctor screws you up, uh, you have to sue them to get back the money to look after the sure, complications. Sure, sure. But, but all but the studies of, yeah, but all the studies of litigion in this country have very little to do with the doctor's conduct or decision making. It's everything to do oh, really? with the doctor's bedside manner. That is interesting. That, that's, yeah. that's also certainly true. That's yeah. certainly true. So let's talk about SARS-CoV-2. This is a this is a virus oh. that um, obviously has escaped from some bioengineering laboratory in China. No, I'm just kidding. Oh no. yes, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was a Democrat lab. It's a Democrat, of course, right? Of course, yeah, yeah. a partisan, a partisan laboratory yeah, virus. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, it, it's 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 a very interesting virus because there are many, many, many people who are infected. Millions, if you pool our two countries, um, who have very low-level infections. Some of them may not even feel much of anything, um, asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic conditions. But on the other extreme, there are people who are older, vulnerable, frailer, or even younger people, the rare, yeah. rare cases, who have just sort of a catastrophic presentation, very bad presentation. Yeah. Yeah. And we had involved experts. We have an infectious disease doctor consulting. We have a pulmonologist. Even myself as a hematologist was brought into the mix to discuss the thrombosis. But you cardiologists, you were left out of the picture. Yeah, yeah. We, we want to be like in charge of everything. Why is nobody asking us anything? Nobody was you know, calling They you. always come and ask us. <laughs> yes. We're like, we're supposed to be the topic when everyone else is confused. You know, so what happens when a patient is really, really sick? Yes. What happens is... Uh, you call intensive care. You put them in, so you get the clever doctors, you put them in intensive care, they look after them. Well, the intensive care doctors are confused and they are completely stuck. The only upgrade they can go is to cardiology. We are the top of the tree. So we don't want to get left out in them. Yeah. How can a disease be deadly and only kill you through the lung? That's not possible. That's, That's not, not possible. going to be allowed. That's not possible. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and so you were feeling left out, understandably. Yeah. Um, there were very little opportunity for you to place your favorite devices, the things that make the blood go yeah. round and round, uh, the things that open up pipes in the body. You had very little opportunity. Well, actually, you'll find the interventionists weren't all that keen. Uh -huh. You didn't actually want to, you know, when the patient is coughing up this disease with an R0 to 3.8. That's right, I see. This mortality, and particularly we're now actually... By the time you get to the international college, you've accumulated a few risk factors. Sure. So you're not in the sort of 20-year-old <laughs> uh, gymnast phase I see, anymore. I see. You're more towards the, uh, you know, 
the cruise liner. So you weren't eager to be paged initially when it was really kind of... You don't of, want to like yeah. be putting the stents in because yes. you have to come close. You got to get close, I see. you put them in a scanner and press go. That's fine. That's fine. Because ah, that's right. Distance. That's right. So scans are good. So uh, scans are good, I else. see. The, 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 the classic cardiac MR. So this is where we find <laughs> ourselves. A couple weeks ago, we started getting, you know, now at least I, I'm aware of three reports, but perhaps there are even more um, reports that are all suggestive that there appears to be some cardiac involvement of the heart, um, that there's something this virus is doing to the heart and it's not so good. And I've heard one expert say that they expect to see a tsunami of heart failure just a few years away. We're going to be inundated with all these young people with failure. Um, I wonder if you might talk a little bit about what are these studies that people are talking about that are getting cardiologists excited and scared? Um, and, and well, yeah. yeah, it's very, so, I mean, um, Obviously, the commonest cause of heart failure uh, now, I mean, probably the medical textbooks you studied at medical school and I studied. Yes. The, the very oldest one said the commonest cause of heart failure is high blood pressure. Yes. And, of course, uh, now it isn't because we figured out you can give blood pressure tablets and it goes away. So now the commonest cause of heart failure is ischemic heart disease. So either people having a big infarct or lots of little infarct. Uh, without knowing sometimes, you know. So mostly it's uh, ischemic heart disease. Um, and uh, the more that people survive myocardial infarctions, thanks to primary PCI and trophobilitis and all that, the more that uh, people uh, survive with ischemic heart disease and have heart failure. So the numbers of patients with heart failure are increasing. That's it. And the medication actually is working uh, and people now live longer with heart failure. And that's a wonderful thing. Uh, now, so obviously the key thing with heart failure, if possible, try and prevent people getting it. Yes. And so we look at things that might cause heart failure. And what they see is when you have a heart attack, um, uh, you can look at the echo and say, well, uh, that's now impaired. You know, Vinay's had an MI. Two weeks ago, his LV is impaired, so we think he's uh, got a good chance of getting symptomatic heart failure at the time. Yes. But if the echo looks reasonable, then on the MRI scan, you sometimes see uh, little bits of... Uh, now, I'm not an MRI doctor, sure. so I'm going to call it late GAD. I might be mixing it up, but little little abnormalities on the picture. Sure. Um, uh, and we know that the people who get those do worse over time. Uh, that is more likely to develop weak hearts over time than people who don't have blockers, uh, blocks. Sure. Now, as I understand it, this is something to do with uh, there being extra water, edema, or scar tissue mm -hmm. in those territories. So it's an indication that there is scar, which causes water to uh, appear on the scan and therefore make the blobs. In the I see. Scan, I think. I see. The problem is that is just in response to little myocardial infarctions or big myocardial infarctions, mm -hmm. if an infarct affects your heart, then the amount of late gap that results in the follow-up scan is an indication of the likelihood of that heart developing heart failure. But if other things cause the blobs of late gap, then we don't know. Ah, that's an important point. Yeah. That models constructed under one set of assumptions uh, may not apply equally to other sets of assumptions. Other sets That's of That's the better way of saying I'm going to yeah. copy that and say no, that because yeah. it makes me look a lot cleverer. <laughs> I'm going to say that. I'm going to say I developed this concept with Vinay Prasad, and we're like that. <laughs> on the uh, uh, and uh, yeah, so uh, 
the, the problem is, and, yes, and, and we I think see. of late GAD in yes. cardiology as like a permanent thing. Yes. Uh, if you have it, it's going to stay there and it might make the heart worse. But the problem is, it looks like when you look at viruses, I know very little about it, but uh, just searching like on Google and PubMed, when you have a very bad viral infection, obviously you get inflamed everywhere. As you know, when patients are very ill with any kind of infection, yes. they get effusions everywhere, get, they get edema everywhere, and then it gradually gets better. But the MRI is quite sensitive and it can show it even when the patient is now fine and gone home. You can still see some um, uh, late GAD. And it appears that over time it gets less um, when people recover from um, flu H1N1. They early In the early scans, they have these things, and then they tend to get less. And in fact, I spoke to Ike Nagel, as you know. So Ike Nagel is the professor, the head of the department that did the JAMA cardiology scan. Yes. And he says, yes, that, that people have seen that, but they haven't studied it systematically because there's never been huge numbers of patients and everything, whereas... COVID is a, is such a big thing. There's going to be so many people who are post-COVID. Yes. Uh, so it matters a lot, and they're putting all this effort into in, into assessing it. So but, but the issue is, he has a strong belief that these blobs in the people post-COVID are an indication of future heart failure. Yes. But, you know, you're a scientist, I'm a scientist, and I think we all have big beliefs, which is that's why we do the experiments. Yeah, of I mean, course. You wouldn't test... No one really believes in H0. I mean, that would be insane. Why are you doing the study if you believe in H0? Right. That's just why you do random things. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so he has a strong suspicion this is the case. And yes. that is why he's devoting his resources into it. And that's fine. And when we discussed it, I now understand what he means by, uh, I really believe this will turn into heart failure because I, I, it's, I really suspect I have a strong hypothesis, you know. Um, so I personally hypothesize the other but entirely right that somebody of his stature should be studying it systematically over time. Great. And I'm sure other people will do the same. So that, that's the issue. You have this marker, which we know means something after an infarct. Yes. But we don't know what it means after COVID. He has a feeling of what it means, uh, but this is going to be found out over time. And I guess one sort of simple control would be, can we go back in time and say maybe 10 years ago, 15 years ago, five years ago even, for people who were critically ill with some illness, some virus, yeah. similarly ill, what happens when yeah. you throw all of them in the MRI machine and what happened to them in the future? So it looks, I think there's a couple of papers I found, uh, and one was flu H1N1. Mm -hmm. And what that showed was, uh, similar, like 30% had things like late GAD. And I've, there's another paper which someone told me about, which I haven't read myself, so I'm a bit anxious, mm -hmm. but it says that it was a different virus. I don't know if it was SARS or not, but, uh, it, uh, that was a small number of patients. And what it showed is they had, late GAD early afterwards, and a repeat scan showed it was less. I see. So it suggests that this is not the kind of globiness that you get after an infarct, which tends to stay forever. Um, so it, the trouble is, it's the numbers of patients for all of those occurring in places with lots of resources, etc., sure. and availability of MRI scan has been relatively low. So there hasn't been a systematic study. I see. Uh, and we'll find out first for um, uh, for, for COVID. But, uh, you know, I, I asked him, you know, do you realize people are taking your paper um, uh, and using it to shut down sports in a country, school sports in a country? Um, I now figure out that's what Big Ten is. I mean, I had no idea. What <laughs> uh, you know, but, yeah. 
So apparently it's some kind of sport. Yes, uh, it is. For fellow Brits, they played some tiddlywinks or something <laughs> between, between schools. Um, but the, and, and he goes, first of all, he goes, no comment. I don't. Uh, no comment. comment. <laughs> and, uh, and then and then he thought, we didn't say anything like that. We didn't say like normal people should not do sport. And then he said, I will comment. I think it doesn't make any sense to do that. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense to shut down sports when we take people who've had a virus and scan them and see little things whose meaning we don't know, but we know what they mean in terms of another virus. Sure. Uh, sorry, uh, in, another in disease. Post MI, yes. Another disease. Yes. Uh, and we are doing a study. Um, what I would say, he said, was that if you have had a bad uh, virus, you should only very gradually get back to normal activity. And that, again, makes perfect sense. Uh, but that's nothing to do with the MRI. That's just uh, good medical advice that you um, often you physically detrain much more quickly than you think when you're um, in bed with a uh, with a bad virus. And so I think his feeling is that normal people who feel normal, whether they have the virus or not, should carry on behaving normally unless they don't feel well enough. Now, what was the logic to the sports? Was it because that by having sports, we are going to spread the virus, presumably making more people no, at risk in the future? Or was it that the oh, heart... Well, if that's the case, you don't need the paper. Okay, uh, right. Because... If that's the case, you don't need the paper. Yeah. Okay. No, no, no absolutely. So, yes. I so... personally wouldn't crowd into uh, like uh, a stadium with loads of other people, particularly if half of them strongly believe it's their right to cough COVID over me. Yes, no, they're God-given, <laughs> God-given American <laughs> right, right to cough COVID, yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I wouldn't want to go, but you know, you could watch from home. Yes. Yes, there's theoretically a risk from the players meeting each other, but I would argue that the only way they can do their sport is coming close. So we can afford some people getting close to other people, um, particularly if they sure, you know, sure. then segregate themselves away. But I'm not too worried about 20 people or so. So, so the logic uh, then must be that the sport itself will cause the heart with these little yeah. late-enhancing so gadolinium to... If you have to... a bad, bad viral myocarditis, yes. you can drop dead when you do heavy exercise. I see. But those people know they have bad viral Yeah, do they tend to have symptoms uh, from their yes. diminished yeah. ejection oh, fraction? Yes. Right, yes. Yeah, exactly. They have symptoms, they feel ill, they get chest pain. So right. Those are the people we say, look, uh, you can't go to sport yet. We're going to keep measuring your blood test to see if there is heart damage, the, you know, whether the troponin is leaking from the, from the myocardium, whether the CRP is up. And until those are back to normal, just do normal everyday activities sure. or heavy sport. So, but it's not something we just say globally, everyone shouldn't do it because there's a downside of uh, quite apart from, you know, the, we sometimes in medicine forget about the economic consequences. So if people, when people are locked down, it's okay for you and me because you can keep doing your things and I can keep talking yes. rubbish on Twitter. Yes. And it doesn't matter to me. Uh, I still get paid. Yes, safe. of course. Uh, but for people who actually have to work for a living, Yes, it's a very difficult... Uh, yes. I'm sure not. But, you know, people actually have to do hard work for a living and yes. can't earn a living. Yes. There's a downside. There's so a downside. that's one yes. downside. It's actually not our job to think about that when giving theoretical scientific Purely advice, medical advice, yes. Yeah. Purely medical advice, but we have to accept that that exists. Yes. And, uh, and policymakers. I'm so glad I'm not a politician. Yeah, right. It's impossible. There's nothing they can do. They, If they do, uh, whatever they do, people want them to have done more. Sure. And other people will want them to have done less. 
and nobody knows what the right answer is anyway. Well, so that's why that's why in it. our country we just abandon any principles of reason <laughs> or decision. We just do what you feel like doing because that yeah. way. Well, well, you had poor old Dr. Fauci uh, <laughs> trying to like give scientific information. But basically, with a madman walking around, <laughs> randomly throwing stuff in. <laughs> so, it would have been too easy for him to do it without such a challenge, you know? He's been there a long time. Okay, let me ask you this. There's another study, or perhaps it is this study, where, you know, you were one of the few observers who something caught your eye. They told you what the ejection fraction was of people who were included in this study. And you noted something interesting. There's this thing called the inter... Oh, this- Ah. Oh, yes, yes, yes. yes. It was a study, actually. Yes, It was a study, yes. So So, you you noticed this interquartile range, which tells you um, from the 25th to 75th percentile of included patients in this study, what was the ejection fraction for that 50% in the middle? And what you felt was it was a bit precise, very narrow. Very narrow, exactly. Yeah, so what happened was this paper was actually given to me by Graham, who is... um, my he he works for the NHS, the the, the government uh, hospital, yes. whereas I work for the university. But he's often sort of uh, responsible for my uh, escapades in various ways. So he sent me this. Um, uh, said, uh, "Oh, your friend has published this paper," and so I know the first author. She was a colleague in our hospital many years ago. And I, actually, it was the abstract. I, I didn't read the paper. It was all like MRI complicated stuff. But the, the, the front page had um, the abstract. It had an interquartile range um, uh, compared between two groups. Something like 53 to was, 55 or something. Yes, exactly. So, it goes, <laughs> um, uh, so I'm going to drop the first two digits and yes. say the interquartile range in one group was 13 to 32. And the interquartile range in the second group was 31 to 56. Yeah. So these are groups whose interquartile ranges are just touching. Yes. They're, they're basically effectively disjoint. Obviously, there's a yes. little bit of overlap, but they are the, the, the middle 50% of one group is sort of non-overlapping with the middle 50% of the other group. Yes. And then uh, the p-value was 0.02. So mm. with a sort of sizable number of patients, like whatever, I like see. 50 yes, that's I not going to happen. That's not going to happen. That's like really, really significant. <laughs> yes. that, that is like that's a, a night put, and day. Put a few more zeros in there and you'll be happy. Right? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Right. Yes. And, and, and it was, if they said P is less than 0.05, I'd go, yeah, all right. Sure. It definitely is less than 0. But it said P equals 0.02. So I thought that is a typo. What those things must be, it is probably not really into what our range is. But something like a, a confidence interval of the mean, which can be now. Okay. Right. So anyway, I just tweeted this uh, and said, "Oh, sorry," uh, and to my friend, you know, teasing her about, you know. And then I, I left Twitter, sort of chew on it, and they were coming back with really soft, soft stuff. What? No, this is like really obviously got to be wrong. So then I said, <laughs> "Okay, that's obviously too hard. Let me scroll through and find another bit." Something I, simpler, uh, something simpler. Something simpler. So yes. I said, EF, interquartile range, 54 to 58. Mm. I mean, even on different frames, it varies more <laughs> than that when you do it of the same person, you know. 
So no. then I said, obviously, that's right. And, and I think what, what, people saying, what you know that people may say, how do you know? If yes. they may have already no, it doesn't. No, it's not. It's not possible. <laughs> you know, it's like saying I went onto the street and got a whole load of people's ages, and I found that fifty percent were between 45 and 53, which, by the way, was the age. Uh, yes, but uh, I, I think a better example is you go on the street and you clock the speed of the cars and 50% are between 54 and 57 miles an hour. Yeah, well, that's actually possible. That's actually possible because they could be going on a road at that speed. Sure. Line of in them. queue, so yes, in queue. Yes. In a queue, yeah, yeah. They yeah, could yeah. be going in a line. So this is something where there's no, I mean, you know. There's no reason. Like okay, all right, fair A 50th enough. birthday party, you might find a crowd of people <laughs> right, 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 from right. your school. A college you know. reunion, you might find that. College right. reunion, yes, okay. exactly. You'd fair see enough, that. yeah. So, uh, and then people didn't get that. I said, okay, blood pressure, blood pressure, into quartile range, 125 to 133. That can't be right. That's in my own blood pressure. Exquisite management, exquisite management. And the people still don't get it. Okay. And so then I started looking at right. other things and it kind of uh, came up. So, um, and, uh, so what happened was, um, they realized that they had shown, they'd accidentally shown something like they'd said mean and interval, median interval range, but actually it was, uh, mean and some sort of confidence interval. In fact, when I spoke to Elka, I mean, he fully understood that this is a massive face palm and he couldn't bear to even think about how they calculated them. Um, uh, so he had recalculated properly and the new paper, the numbers are absolutely... But no, just to be out. clear though, the, the, when, the, when they put the new paper out, they said, you know what, we're not going to go near interquartile range, we're just going to put mean <laughs> <and> standard deviation. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, fuck into no, Cortel Ranger, done with that. I 100% believe with them. I, I, you know, it's, it's, it's embarrassing. Uh, but, you know, I have never, you know, I teased them online a bit, and I said, uh, but they, I've never seen anyone replace a paper so, so quickly. quickly. It yes, was it was just very quick. Like that, over, you know, within a few days. Very quick. So th then I did a sort of uh, interview with him, and of course, uh, the one or two little things. So the, the, the uh, correction I interpret as saying, that, you know, those weren't medians and IQRs, those were um, means and so confidence levels. But actually, in that case, the means should remain the same in the new version. Yes, it should. And some of them didn't by quite a bit. So in the conversation, he hadn't realized that they changed. And then he felt very, very edgy. And I, I, I you know, I, you know, you know me, I, I'm a cheeky guy and I will sort of pin someone down. Yes. And so I don't blame him for saying, uh, see, see, eject, cancel, I refute my permission to broadcast. But actually, the rest of the conversation was very reasonable. I think. But he, you're curious about two happened, things. You're curious yeah. both about what they found, but also about yes. what led to the error. You want yeah, both yeah, things answered. Yeah. Because we will always keep making those mistakes. Yes. And uh, so we have a rough idea that it was something like the wrong stats, but also... There's some bits unexplained. It's not explained uh, but, what exactly it was. I still yeah, don't see. And, but I don't blame him for not wanting to look into a crime. You know, who wants to know? You yeah. know uh, it went wrong. You know, and I, I, I said, so, and, and he agrees that this is um, a uh, interesting scientific uh, question. And he has a strong belief that despite the blood tests of troponin and CRP coming down, because of the things he sees on the scan, he is fearful that this could turn into heart failure in the long term. Mm. I am suspicious that it won't. And that's why that, you know, it takes two to make science. You have two different opinions and someone does experiment. Now, let me ask you this question. Now we have a lot of people in whom the seed of fear has been planted. Once it's planted, hard mm -hmm. to unplant. And now yeah. the question is, 
obviously in our country, we're going to do the sensible thing, which is we have built these machines and we've got to keep them running. So we're going to put people in there <laughs> frequently and we're just going to follow everybody. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but one could imagine that you could design a randomized study that asks a couple of things. One, of course, we don't know what will happen, but then we might ask the question while we await to see what will happen, what's the best strategy to monitor these people? Because you can keep well, scanning them, but what might you do differently to those people? You know, will you improve their outcomes? That's the reason I'm much more relaxed about the whole thing. Because if people get, um, so now I'm speaking up, so I, I should warn uh, the audience that I am not a professor of my, I'm not barely a professor of anything, to be honest, if uh, certain people have anything to do with it. But anyway, uh, I'm not a professor of myocarditis, but as I understand it, when your myocarditis is no longer active, you're no longer releasing ketonin and sure. you shouldn't really go very much downhill. Uh, I think. So, uh, there is some prospect to go downhill, uh, potentially, but I personally would think not, because I think the way my heart eye just goes downhill is that the heart is being chewed up by active inflammation. Yes. So, um, uh, now, the reason I'm quite relaxed about it, and I tell my patients to be relaxed, is that there are lots of things to worry about. There is COVID. The COVID is a really bad thing. <laughs> That's one thing, that. yes. yeah. <laughs> and if you get it, don't pass it on to your older, frailer family. Uh, that's a really big problem. Then there is hypertension, diabetes, all the things that are, that are going to kill us anyway Yes, um, are still going to be killing us. There is a small possibility, which is theoretical, that the, off, that the leftovers of COVID may also add to that mix and make things worse. But the thing that became clear in the revised paper is that when you look at the um, uh, the COVID survivors compared to completely healthy controls, they were completely different in terms of MRI scans and, and stuff. But when you look at the risk factor matched controls, um, they were much more similar. That's an excellent point. Uh, than yes. that to the COVID people. So it made me much more reassured because I thought, well. Yes, the people who get COVID tend to be a little less fit and well mm -hmm. from the general population of that age. And it may be, though, that background condition that gives you the blobbiness. Yes. So yes. let's not worry too much. In terms of what we're going to do about it, that's the other thing. If there was something you could do, then, of course, I am completely keen to... But there is no special thing to do. The patients don't have heart failure now. Yes. So we're probably not going to give them asymptomatic blockers, spinal acid, sure. that kind of stuff. Sure. Um, and uh, so what we probably do is keep an eye on them. And if they develop LV dysfunction, sure. then give those things. Now, for people who have no <coughs> ongoing damage to the heart, I'm not particularly bothered that they're going to need a speaker blocker, spinal acid, and being dragged in and out of the hospital and have a question mark hanging so that their family thinks, oh, my God, he might die, you know, and uh, then nobody can get life insurance or buy a house. Um, and I think we should only do that for people if there is a well-founded belief that something will happen. Yes. Not just because, as you say, whatever you said about the model in a different uh, scheme or not. Yes. That. Well, um, that's, uh, that's bad. It's like, you remember the days when when you had an HIV test, you couldn't get life insurance. That's right. 
even <laughs> and and in this country <laughs> HIV just was the end. <laughs> yes. We we the to even do a test, you needed written yeah, consent from the test. patient because the stakes were so high. Yeah, um, yeah. But but I will tell yeah. you, I mean, everything you articulated is the right answer. That's how one ought yeah, to approach it. You can test them it. for cancer. You can test them yeah. for anything. You can test them for all kinds of incurable things. Right. But you can't test them for the one thing that you actually has a treatment. Oh, of course. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it. Quickly changed. But I think that what will what you will see in the at least in the United States, I don't know if you're aware, mm. but our first quarter for healthcare nonprofit hospital nonprofits was really rocky. We had a huge loss, and so we need to recoup that loss. And what we are going to do is create a <laughs> clinic called the Cardiology Interdisciplinary COVID Survivorship Clinic. I, I don't think oh. that this hasn't happened yet, but I guarantee you it's going to happen. And in this oh, clinic, Francis Industries wants to take a share of yeah, that. We'll because, do serial uh, <laughs> six-month cardiac MRs at the first oh, sign. Brilliant. You know, why start an ACE inhibitor when the LV is already failing or has failed? Start the oh, ACE yeah. inhibitor <laughs> before it fails. Start the yeah. spironolactone. Maybe even yeah. just place the by VICD just in case you want just to, in case. just in case. Why not do an aortic valve replacement and uh, a aorta transplant as well, kidney transplant, of because course. it might come in handy. It might come in so, handy, yes. So, and so this reminds me of William Sue and my uh, the Golden Nugget Clinic for yes. asymptomatic pain yeah. for people who are in pain but don't know. Oh, yes. And that is a very <laughs> underserved population. Yes. So, you know, I want to go on Oprah and tell people, you feel fine, you feel normal? Actually, you have asymptomatic pain to the Francis Golden Nugget mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and we will reveal how much pain you have been suppressing and then treat it. And then treat it. <laughs> Let's switch gears to the next topic du jour, which is, um, which is the fish oil. Now, you know, fish oil is such a fascinating thing to me. I understand that there is a type of fish that is very favored in Japanese cuisine. If the chef cuts it right, it is a del delicacy. If the chef cuts yeah. it even r slightly wrong, it can kill you. This is yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, this is the puffer the fish. Puffer this fish. Always, yes. this always, I just I try to understand this because how did anyone discover that? Was uh, it somebody? Was it somebody? It's who, a high stakes well, game. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, I think it's proper. You know, uh, let's not be sexist, but it could have been an ancient Japanese lady or man who could do it one way or another. Yes. Who uh, was a bit annoyed with her other half. Yes. And decided to use this well-known poison. Yes. And mix it in. And then find that mysteriously the next day he's saying, he didn't "Oh, that die. was lovely, he darling." He didn't die. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, actually, yeah. And then she just sets up shop making this yes. stuff, and he never asks how it is that she discovered. So the puffer fish is, is reminiscent of Vesepa to me, which is Icosapetyl ethyl, uh, which is one of the derivative fish oil compounds, because if you include the other thing, the DHA, in the EPA, it does. It's the puffer fish. It's gonna. It's not gonna do anything. But if you have the pure, the pure oil, the pure vasepa, oh, yes. it is ah. a positive trial. So the, they have cut it just right. That's. Uh, uh, it's amazing. It's amazing. It? No, yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm personally interested in this stuff yes. because I actually have triglycerides. So I take statin just because I, I like most Asians. I have family history and yes, uh, I. Uh, don't, well, not like most Asians, but I don't have a very good diet and exercise regime. Yes. And I take a statin. But I have triglycerides, despite, you know, being properly fasted and everything. So when Ethan Weiss circulated the tweet about this study, I said, this is great. I'm going to get some of this. And yes. then I found out you couldn't get some. So I said, well, I'm going to have to smuggle it in and mm. find a friendly drug dealer who will sure. be able to, you know, 
uh, piggyback this on some cocaine or whatever it is that they, uh, that they smuggle. Um, uh, but, uh, and then Matt Shunshin, my fellow, said, uh, I wouldn't put in your bulk order for the stuff yet. Have you I see. Too? I see. And then I looked and I said, yeah, but some of the numbers don't quite add up. But I think it's something to do with this log adjustment thing. So, I, you know, I, I wouldn't worry about it. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then only the next morning. Uh, so it's a bit embarrassing that I pride myself on, like, having this forensic view but failed to notice it because I was so interested in having the uh, medication myself. And he said, isn't it strange that in most trials, when you randomize, mm-hmm. the two arms start off about the same. About the same. And then the active arm gets better. Yes. And the placebo arm stays the same or gets worse. Yes. And or gets, uh, yeah, or the active arm gets worse less than the Correct. placebo Correct, exactly. Gets worse but, less than the And so yeah. they divert. The important yes. thing, they start off they the same. They start in the same divert. and they end in different yeah. places. That's how most mm-hmm. of our therapies work, yes. Exactly. And then when you point it out, it's one very odd. They all, all, there were six endpoints, which, you know, is a generous number of endpoints, but you know, why not? Uh, but very strangely, they all, by eye, seem to start off wide apart mm-hmm. and then converge and mm-hmm. end up almost the same at the I end. See. And uh, I thought, this is very odd. I've never seen anything like this. And this is, uh, uh, so... At the time... So it's obviously uh, because even though you randomized them, you gave the challenge. Challenging patients were assigned to the intervention, and the intervention improved their outcome, and then less challenging patients were given the placebo. That's not a possible... Yeah, but, you know, yes, I mean, you could do that if you allocated them on purpose. Yes, on purpose. But when you randomize it, it should be roughly the same. And, you know, sometimes... And sometimes it will be different. And that's why, you know, statistically they say, do not do yes, p-values on, on table your baseline one. tables. On yeah, table yeah. one, yeah. It's a stupid thing. And it's that's stupid, right, yeah. You're testing whether did you randomize or not. Of uh-huh. course you randomize. Of course. You know, but, uh, but that uh, rule is based on the premise that table one is actually uh, the right time point you're looking at. You know, that's the rule. <laughs> the rule is predicated on a few things. If table one are your end results, then, you know, yeah, all those yeah. rules fall so, out the window. Okay, so I see no, what you're saying. So, so the table one, so, the, so, so tell me what I this thought, is. Uh, I mean, yeah. I guess one thing that we don't know what it is, is what, how do you measure coronary atherosclerosis what kind of gizmo do you have a caliper you go in there how are you measuring this thing yeah so that is there are lots of ways of doing it so um uh the old-fashioned way was called intravascular ultrasound Mm -hmm. so you put a wire inside the coronary artery a bit and then on it there's a thing that looks a bit like a stent but actually it's a tiny ultrasound scanner yes and uh you you can scan a short distance through the wall of the coronary artery i see and see where the various bits of that aroma, et cetera, are, and you can measure it. That's been the traditional way of doing it. It's it's quite invasive. Yes. So, I mean, it's very invasive. Um, and so it's a little bit uh, kind of, uh, it, it imposes extra risk for the patient. So there is an alternative way, which is to do it by CT scanning. Yes, I see. And so now that people debate back and forth, which is better, um, and, um, you know, I'm probably slightly in the IVUS camp, mm-hmm. intravascular ultrasound camp. Um, uh, uh, but just because, but, but again, that's why I'm in the let's have a stent camp. Sure. I'm used to it. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, so CT is a newer one. Um, uh, and so you just measure it. You, you get a CT scan and then you go through and you say, right, there are 25 millimeters of, uh, millimeters cubed of atheroma in this. I and see. then, of this type of atheroma, it's this amount, et cetera. 
Yes. Yeah. And how right. did they do so it in this study? In this study, they used the IVUS? No, no, this study was CT scan. I see CT scan, okay. And so, so um, what you noticed was at baseline, the group receiving icosapental, uh, I'm just going to call it VASEPA, the group receiving yeah. VASEPA, they had yeah. um, more plaque than the group receiving yes. placebo. But by the end yes. of the study, that gap had the closed. They were the same. Yes. yes. And so it was like a traditional trial, except it was sort of, uh, it looked backwards. Yeah, you know, a little so backwards. When, yeah. when I put this on, so people on Twitter were sort of discussing this, and David Cohen said, do you think they could have mixed up the time point? Mm -hmm. Because that would explain why it starts off different and ends up the same. And then he did another tweet saying, uh, no, that can't be right, because that would make the active um, uh, harmful. Harmful, because, <laughs> yeah, inferior. So then yeah. Uh, Francis Industries kicked in, you know, we do consultancy to this sort of situation, and we said, well, if you mixed up the time point... And the arms. And you mixed up the arms, <laughs> yes. then it would be fine. <laughs> yes. yeah. Uh, yeah. But I think, the, I mean, the thing is, you know, easy for us to make fun. There's a lot as a major trial, and yes. the trialists are very unhappy that we were uh, making fun. But, you know, it's... It, when you publish something, it is literally public, and uh, people will look at it and say things. So, you know, it's uh, so it was unusual. So, then the other thing um, that uh, came to mind was if you look at how quickly the atheroma progressed yes. in the uh, control arm, it's brisk. It was <laughs> it's brisk, a brisk. Is a word. So, it's brisk. So, at you know, you, you, Nominally, the number it says is 11% uh, per 18 months. That doesn't sound like a lot, but there's a problem with that. That yes. calculation is actually incorrect. Um, what they have done by mistake is when they log, when they did the logarithm, mm -hmm. so uh, let me explain about yes, the logarithms. Plot yes. Volumes. Yes. So the, the plot volumes are distributed like people's salary. They're not distributed like people's height. No. I see. If you... Uh, if average person is say one meter seventy, yes, you might get someone of one meter ninety, yes, but you're not going to get someone of three meters. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, whereas salaries, you know, you might have people with a fifty thousand dollar salary, yes, and you might have someone with a five hundred thousand dollar salary yes. and five million dollar yes. salary. It's entirely possible. Yes. So they're distributed. I call it the salary distribution. Yes. Um, and that's because when you put it on a log scale. It kind of looks normal. Yes. Um, and so for things like um, atheroma burden, they're distributed not like age and weight and height, but uh, actually, not, actually not like height. Yes. Uh, uh, but uh, because weight, actually, you can have double yes, the normal of weight. Yes. Uh, and whereas more. you can't have 100% below average. Yes. That would be very unfortunate. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, but are they really um, distributed on a log scale? I didn't know that. Yeah, so, well, because, you know... Because some people, people have, have heavily plaqued, yeah, heavy yeah, cholesterol exactly. burden, yeah. And so when you look at the, the famous interquartile ranges, they go, you know, the, the upper end is much further away from the median and from, from the lower case. Sure. And that's normal for things like, as you know, CRP, troponin, yes. all of your um, hematological... Um, Milieu uh, parameters, yeah. Yeah, all of those things tend to be sort of yes. uh, log normal distribution. So they logged it, and then they saw that there was a 0.4 log unit. I see. Yes, of course. And because the baseline was four, they said, oh, that's an 11% increase. Oh, yes, mm -hmm. I see. Actually, it isn't. It's a 0.4 log unit increase. Yeah, it's 10 to the power. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. 
which turns out to be something like uh, when you do ten to the five, it's it's uh, plus one hundred and fifty percent. I see. Right, plus one hundred fifty percent in a short period so, of time. Yeah, in eighteen months. So well, this is like, and this is like, why you do the stance then, obviously, because you don't want this to keep going. <laughs> <laughs> So 150%. Yeah. That's a bit of a shock. That's a bit of a so shock. That's yeah. like rough, roughly saying that comes to about, you know, doubling every year. So then that becomes like, you know, the story of the grain of rice. And, you know, the two guys, it was an Indian story. We uh-huh. can take credit for it between us. Uh, so there was a guy that did something to some Indian Maharaja. And uh, then he said, okay, I'll give you anything. And he goes, oh, yeah. okay. A grain of rice on day one. one, two grains on day two. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah, now, yeah. it doubles every year. Every you know? year, I see. So, yeah. And you know that before he gets halfway across the chess hold, chessboard, he bought the whole of India, you know. Yes. Uh, and that's the problem. If something really does go up 49% a year, that is really bad. Yeah, right. <laughs> Compound interest. That's new. But let me ask um, you, what's the measurement error on these, this thing? I mean, I can't, I, it's not like measuring your height. It must be sort of a, bl- no, uh, no there, yeah. There, yeah, there must be. But yeah. I guess, you know, they have a lot of time to do it. And yeah, they and a, they have a lot of people. Yeah, they're averaging it over they these have a people. Lot of people yeah. And they can average over time. So, you know, it should be reasonable. So I think it is not a random error. Well, let me put it another way. Yes. Um, so I, the poor investigators were very unhappy and they thought I was like victimizing them for some reason. And I really wasn't. I, I just look at numbers. And, you know, when research fellows come to my office and present their research, while they're blabbering on and saying, you know, know blah, yeah. blah, blah, I'm just searching through the numbers to find something to prove them wrong so I can make them go away so I can uh, do something else instead. Yeah, not have to work so on their paper. So that's what I yeah. do. I entertain yeah. myself in telling them their stats are wrong. So uh, that's the only reason I did it. Um, and uh, so I would say they, well, I gave them the option that maybe there was accidental unblinding of the baseline uh, measurement. And, and explain, explain how, that, how, how would that have resulted in this? Yeah, how would unblinding at baseline, well, yeah. Yeah, suppose, okay, let's go, let's leave this aside yes. and let's go to the world of COVID. Yes. Yeah. And we are doing some, um, uh, so actually you're a hematologist, right? So, so they, so they say, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, suppose you look at that, like slides of, um, uh, I don't know what your cells are called, macrophages or whatever. Sure. Lymphocytes. Lymphocytes, yeah, lymphocytes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. They're the ones I remember. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and you know, you look at those and say, well, is this uh lymphoma? Is this a leukemia? Um, you are biased by what you know that if the patient has come in with bruises all over, fatigue, weight yes, loss, yes. you kind of believe it. if the other guy is bouncing around and playing yes. basketball, you it's a borderline case you may not call it. And that's actually, you know, in clinical medicine we call that good practice, which is you take the whole picture and report. The Bayesian uh, way. Course, yes, yes. The Bayesian way. That's the only way you can live. Because yes. otherwise the entire hospital will shut down every time someone has a slightly low platelet. Yes. Or, you know, they're slightly high hemoglobin. They have to have every test under the sun. Um, uh, but in research, you can't do that. You're not allowed to know which arm the patient is in because otherwise it messes everything up. Now, in a big department, it is possible that people might accidentally have come across this information because they may have, you know, um, if you're doing a study on lymphocytes yes. and uh, you are trying to see if this treatment makes an effect on that lymphocyte, yes. right, on the one hand, you may have people in your department who are clinically caring for the patients who have to know everything to make admittedly biased, but that's actually what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to integrate all the information. And you have another group of people who are supposed to be doing the research measurements 
and they should never like say, "Oh, look at this scan. Look, at, I mean, look at this lymphocyte. Isn't it crazy?" Yes. This is on Mr. Jones in you know uh, how. What are we going to do about this? So, and then of course, when the other guy sees the same thing, then of course they they tilt their measurement. Not because they're trying. Remember, this isn't people doing things to make the answer wrong. This is people doing things to make the answer more representative, yes. which is what we call in medical, uh, in medical practice. You know, we make it more. If someone is fainting and you have a blood pressure of 120 and then the next measurement is 85. You write down the 85. You leave the 85, yes, yeah, right. because that's the one that fits. Whereas if someone is feeling perfectly well and leaping around, you write down the normal one. I and, see. Uh, because, so, uh, you know, so, so you're, yes, I see. So yeah. you're, you're, so you're, it is you're, possible yeah. that somewhere in the department, yes. there was, that was my hypothesis. Yes, the, 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 patient, the, the, the person making the measurement knew this person received a good salutatory drug, and thus yeah. they were inclined to give him a higher baseline measurement and a lower yeah. final measurement. Yeah, I yeah. mean, that's, in, that's exactly what we do in mental. In fact, that's what I, in fact, that anyone is listening, uh, I hope patients aren't listening to this, but let's say, let's say this. So if people come, I give this scenario to any cardiologist, yes. uh, and who instantly knows what I mean. So you, um, persuade a surgeon to take on a challenging case of mitral valve regurgitation. Sure. To do as a, um, uh, mitral valve repair. Okay. They do the operation. And the patient does really badly. They're on intensive care. They're oh. nearly dead. They have to have, you know, uh, Vinay Prasad come and minister the, uh, oh, various drugs and oh, everything. Boy. That's and when you're really in trouble. Yeah. Yeah. Then you're in trouble. And then yeah. they get home. And then they come back to the clinic. Yeah. A couple of months later and you do their scan. Yes. Their echo. And you look at it. Yeah. And. And it looks the same. To be yeah. Honest. But in that fact, slightly worse, maybe. Uh, but the patient feels okay. Yeah, and you can't so tell the surgeon that. They're just going to... No, no, and you, and you can't tell the patient, oh, yeah. it looks the same. Yeah, you can't tell slightly worse, yeah. Because they are like, that would like ruin them. They managed to live through yes, this experience. Yes, so what, yes. what do you say? Everyone yes. says the same thing. Oh, it's at the moment it's... Well, apart from the people who would actually lie, obviously. But, you know, <laughs> uh, people say, at the moment it's not um, steady... Uh, but it's early days, and the important thing is you are feeling well, and that's you know that's great. So you pulled through great, wasn't it great? You know, saw you two months ago, and we were all worried. And now you're doing so great. Yes. Uh, how's your family? Change the subject. Talk about look at this creatinine. It's really good. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Much better oh, than those, before. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and look how pink. And look how pink your cheeks are. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> and then the next person to come in is their twin brother. Uh huh. You have the same experience. I see. And now you do their scan, and it looks about the same. Maybe a little bit better. You say, oh, fantastic. Look at this. <laughs> you pick out the one measurement that has looked slightly better by 0.1 arbitrary units. And you yes. say, this is better. This shows you how fantastic it's gone. Already your E-wave deceleration time has improved by 1%. Yes. Uh, and even though you have no interest in this variable, it's something that's gone in the right direction and you tell it. So that's our job. That is actually our job. If we didn't do that, if we sat there like a robot saying, uh, you know, your parameters are stable, everything fine, and we are not doing our job as, uh, as doctors. So, yes. Uh, Although people say, no, why, are you, why are you not interested in the placebo effects? Okay, no, 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 I'm definitely interested in the placebo effects. I think of it like, you know, when uh, there's a calamity in Africa and we send them all uh, lots of uh, milk powder. Yes. That's fine to send them the milk powder. 
But you need to remind the aid workers there to add the water in yes. before you give it to the baby. Yes, okay. So we take out the milk powder to make it convenient. To, we take out the water to make it easy to ship. However, when we do clinical medicine, most of what we do, the great bulk of uh, our stuff is placebo. That, you know, and reassuring them and telling them not to worry. At least telling them what to worry about. Right. Worry about smoking, right, right, worry about right, weight, right, things right. you can do about. Right. Don't worry about your genetics. That's in the pot. That's a good analogy. Um, yeah, uh, so so the intervention so, is the milk powder, and yeah, when you study it, you need placebo. to make sure it's got something in there. But when yeah. you go back to the bedside, you got to add yeah, back the water. Yeah, you put the placebo back in. Yeah, yeah you put, put the water in. Yeah. Because that's the main thing. That's the main yeah, thing, yeah. <laughs> that's the main thing. But I think another way to put it is, I mean, if we, the way I like to think about it is, for us to justify the expense, our, our big titles and our big salaries and everything we do and the fact we're a societal good, there has to be more there than the placebo. There has to be that powder too. It has to actually exactly. have a benefit. But then yeah. when you give it, you have to take advantage of all of it because that's being a doctor. Um, my, my, my daughter, when she was three, when she had a temperature, would give us some paracetamol. Yes. And I would say, right. And, and you'd say, this is going to make you feel worse. No, <laughs> no, no, yeah, no. Yeah, I right, say, right. give it the yeah, And yeah, then yeah. I would say, right. And now we must give you the placebo. The pl yes. And the way you do that is you, and you take the paracetamol, then you take some deep breaths and feel whether the paracetamol is improving your feeling. You yes. feel it going down your arm. You feel it coming to your head. Go, yes, Debbie, I can feel yes. it. I said that all that. Um, uh, uh, my wife didn't like it and uh, thought I was insane because she went up to her mum and said, um, um, you know, well, daddy has given me a tablet and he's given me a lot of placebo. You know, <laughs> funnily enough, I'm not married. You <laughs> do have a very different sense of humor. And I say, I say, well, but, you know, why not? I do the same when I take a yes. cough mixture, I maximize the placebo. Yes. That's the main thing. Yes. So, 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 uh, so that's well put. Yeah. So, so that's what you think might be going on in this study. Well, I thought, but yes, it's very clear on Twitter yes. that it was blinded. I so, see. Well, therefore, we don't know what happened, I see. and uh, it's just a very unusual study. Uh, it's unusual because the arms start far apart, and it's unusual because the placebo deteriorates arm quite rapidly, briskly, quite rapidly yeah, compared quite to. Um, yeah, compared to other sort of observational cohorts. Well, time. I or, have, yeah. yeah. I mean, I view it from a Bayesian point of view, which is that we've been yeah. giving, we've been slicing this fish for many years and giving different fish oils. And most of those yeah. fish oils have not done much. Suddenly, a company facing a patent extinction has a positive fish oil study. And the control arm of that study got um, mineral oil enema. No, I'm not an enema. Of course, they just received many capsules of mineral oil. <laughs> and they did have some diarrhea. And their LDL rose. Interestingly, it rose in the control arm. Mm. But it was a positive yeah, trial. It rose by more than the uh, it fell in the active one. Yes, it, 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 well, it, it, yeah, it, it, it rose as briskly as these uh, atheromas did. And it was, it, it was a brisk. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So so I guess one of my questions is, at what point do we ask ourselves if this fish oil is just, uh, is it, does it do anything at all? I mean. Well, I know. And I'm trying not to get into that yeah. because I know the evaporate people are very unhappy about my speculation. So. Uh, I, I, to be honest, I don't know anything about this. Sure. I mean, I didn't know about the mineral oil business when I was. Uh, um, I see. Uh, when I was tweeting, it was just the numbers were funny. I see. Um, uh, so, looking at what other people have said, they are concerned that the mineral oil is um, uh, might be harmful. And certainly, the blood tests suggested the mineral oil arm 
um, got worse in more parameters. Sorry, in, in, in many parameters, the mineral showed more adverse change yes. than the active arm showed beneficial. Yes. Um, and so if there was a difference between the arms, it looked, looking at the biochemistry, that it was more coming from the mineral oil than from the active arm. Yes. It, the one thing the investigators said to me was, but they have compared this with another study called Garlic 5, okay. which had a completely different placebo. Corn oil or something. Different oil or something. Exactly. Yes. And that was, um, uh, and both placebo arms progressed at the same rate. Oh, I see. Okay. I mean, so... It, it's, it's un, I, I don't know what to make of it. I mean, it's unusual for a placebo arm, um, treatment to be harmful. Unusual. But it is unusual for the power too, for two different, completely biochemically unrelated, um, placebo arms to progress 10 times faster than, uh, more than 10 times, like 15, 20 times faster than, um, the general population. And I don't know what to make of it. And, because it's not really my field, and because they, you know, they, uh, I think one of them said uh, was very unhappy, and so I don't want to sort of pour more uh, trouble onto that, that that controversy. There are people much better qualified than I. I see. Let's talk about the the last issue I wanted to talk to you on this. Um, what, whenever we're talking about this, sometime sometime earlier in this week, um, the issue is, you know. Um, you're someone who did a very interesting study. You you got people with uh, chronic, stable coronary artery disease. Um, you put them on a treadmill and you did a modified Bruce Protocol t- treadmill exercise test. Um, you randomly assigned them to um, wearing, you know, uh, having a stent placed, being told, um, you know, we placed the stent, or no, being told we may or may not have placed the stent, wearing yeah. headphones um, in the in the uh, in the in the suite uh, procedure suite, um, and not having the stent placed, um, but being told again we may or may not have placed the stent, and um, you you then assess them with your primary endpoint of a modified Bruce Protocol exercise treadmill test, and. This is the Orbita study that you had some role in. Russia, yeah, of course, exactly. is guilty of the of the main. Yeah, Russia, Russia's the one who messed it up. Yeah, in it my up. mind, it was all going to be obviously positive. Yeah, and, and this was her thing. Yeah. So we were putting on. Um, uh, Russia and I reported the study when she was actually. I was supposed to be nominally training her in doing DCI, but it actually is severely ironic because she had three times more experience and she traveled all around the world. I see, doing PCI. Italy yes. to learn all this stuff. But so we were, we were doing this and we were, uh, she was, um, uh, about to put in the stand. She was looking at the three or three five in this. And, uh, yeah. I, I looked at her and smiled and said, what? You think it should be like two, seven, five? I'm laughing. I don't know why you're asking me. Yeah. You know, five times more about it than me. I don't even know that the bloody thing is going to be any good. <laughs> Uh, uh, and he, um, and then she said, of course it is. I said, yeah, of course it is. But no one's actually shown that angioplasty for stable angina yes. relieves angina. And she goes, it must have done. And yes. I said, yeah, they must have done, but I don't think they have. And then she went off and she read it up and she got very like worked up about it and said, yes. right, I want to do a trial to show this. And I said, okay, yeah, I suppose it will make me like, um, friendly to the cardiological brethren who all don't answer my calls anymore. Um, <laughs> but um, uh, I, I find it a little bit boring. So I'm only going to do it if we can build in an element of 
something interesting. I see. Results going to be positive. What we do is all these things that people the, say at baseline. I see. People should do to see if your angina will be removed. Yes, this FFR. Them. Yes, I see. So FFR, you, you, you let's make a measurement. I see. Because yeah. they say if it's more than eight point eight five, don't do it. You know, it's really bad. Well, it's that's criminal. a magic number that Moses descended <laughs> from the mountain with. Um, yeah, sorry, point eight. Point I, eight. I forget the number. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> but it's because eight. God it's said. Po- yeah, it's a. Cl- it's yeah. the. It's that, that's the number. Yeah. Yeah, that's the number it has to be, and. Uh, I uh, couldn't really take that seriously. How can there be a cliff edge? I mean, nothing yes. in biology happens like yes. that. And what happened? So it annoyed me that I would, you know, because in the UK, people, all the interventional cardiologists are also clinical cardiologists. So, and we, when we send in a patient from a, a clinic, a different cardiologist, uh, one of our colleagues will do the procedure. And so that's actually quite a good system because it means all of our practice is somewhat together we can't do wildcat things because we are working as part of a bigger machine yes um and we so i started noticing that we're sending people with angina and they would go to the cath lab and they see a nice tight lesion but the ffr was just on the wrong side of the treatment and they I said see. they felt very proud of writing oh and so they said magic click and the patient is there with them. what am i supposed to do with this patient yeah and uh so um, I, I, it used to irritate me. I said, right, I don't believe, I think it's going to be a gentle slope. It has to be. Yes. And so we should buy, we can use it as an input into our decision making, but yes. it can't be the only one. Um, and uh, so I wanted to show the slope. So that's the whole reason my interest in doing that. Unfortunately, she went and messed it up somehow. Somehow she <laughs> took a perfectly good procedure and proved that it didn't work, mm. which uh, I, I still, I'm, I still find it actually difficult to believe. And uh the interesting thing is, it worked on the ischemia. So the stress echo sure. um, uh, showed the ischemia went away. Sure. And the FFR completely got back. That's right. So it's just that the patients couldn't help. Yes. And that might have been for many different reasons. One of them was we left them all on the anti-angina. So maybe the tablets are just really good and they mask it. So that's why in Orbiter 2, we're not giving the anti-angina. I see. So that... It should, I mean, it's got to work now. I mean, if it doesn't work Orbiter 2, we need to lock up the cath lab between 9 and 5, say, you know, <laughs> take to aspirin, call us if you get an impact, Yes. You know, uh, because we need to not do elective things if they don't affect prognosis and they don't relieve angina. But I, I, I'm actually genuinely convinced it does work. We just um, assume it was about a half as effective as the previous unblinded study when we were doing that. Uh, what we didn't realize is, you know, there were unblinded studies. Which yes, the, un- amazing the unblinded study, Acme, what, 120 seconds on treadmill test. Yeah. And, was, and, yeah. and you powered for 30 seconds. You were powered yeah, for 30. And it was 16. And, yeah, and it was 16. And so I guess yeah. one, one possibility is that it is actually 16, in which case I think 16, yeah. I think a lot of people will be dissatisfied with because yeah. um, it's beneath what... I mean, renolazine is better than 16, for Christ's sakes, and that's not yes. a great drug. Yes. Um, yeah, people actually think I'm uh, yeah. like advocating renolazine because we use that as an example. <laughs> yeah. I actually hate it. Yeah, of course, we hate it. It's a shitty drug. I actually yeah. hate the damn drug, but yeah. I actually use that because it actually gives a number. Yes. And uh, it, it, it's, uh, you know, so all drugs, if, you know, if I came to you and say, I have got francisoquine, and it was really good for angina, I gave it to a few people, and they say they're really happy with it. People just laugh at me. Yes. Uh, you say, where's the placebo? Um, so, but we've managed to not think about that with uh, procedures. For some reason, there's been like a blind spot. 
So I think we just forgot. Uh, Russia has a much more sophisticated view, and she thinks is that they, they actually, some people knew that it wouldn't work and they didn't want to test it. But I, I think, how can anyone believe that it doesn't work? I mean, <laughs> people find out. The trouble is it's because we teach people. We teach people that angina, see, narrow artery, angina, open it up, goes away. Yes. And every patient, um, when they come to the clinic, uh, you know their ischemia test results. So when they say, I have a thing here and whatever, and you look, it's a strong ischemia and there's a tight lesion, you go, you write down exertional angina, because that is taking all the information we have and putting it together. Uh, then they go and they have the procedure, and when they come out, they say, oh, this pain. ah, it's just niggling pain. It's yes, all rubbish. It's... Look, here's the ischemia test. It's normal. <laughs> and you write down, no angina, just niggling pain. Exactly. And it's a major positive yes. result. And what you forget is you have actually used that to update your brain as to the performance of the procedure yes. as a success. Yes. Well, actually, there was no net effect. Yes. Even if the patient didn't have a placebo effect, you have, like, um, I don't want to say fake, but you have fake a positive result in the Yes. Notes. Unintentionally. Um, you know, this wasn't, this isn't the only example where the belief the doctor has done something to make you better makes you, to some degree, better. And there's another good example, CRT? Yeah, <laughs> yes. Uh, and, uh, yeah, so CRT is a, a, a very interesting example. Because in heart failure, when you put the CRT pacemaker into a patient, yes. um, uh, there is a very large clinical symptomatic uh, relief. Uh, but when you look through the trial, it is much larger in the unblinded trials mm. than in the blinded trials. I see. And when you look, the, the majority of the effect is, is, the, is, is due to it being unblinded. I see. And so when we are trying to use clinical practice data to try and find out how can we maximize response, I always tease the guys doing that because the thing that made that all these studies were different in was the amount of placebo they had. That's, yes, the, that's the key difference. ingredient. So if you want to maximize response, then hire a bunch of like guys to come in and dance around with a brass <laughs> band saying, look how good your heart is. Yeah. That would maximize it. And is that really a suitable topic for cardiologists to study, to take unblinded yes. data and work out how they can maximize it. Just don't do it. Just, well, I, once, do I once saw a cardiologist after an angioplasty for stable angina uh, bring the patient in the room and show them the imaging and said, look at this oh, blood definitely. flow before, look yeah. at it after. And then he said, go ahead and tell me you have angina. Go ahead and tell me after that. <laughs> <laughs> no, that is actually an yeah. example of yeah. the milk powder and water. Yeah. Yes, during a research trial, we don't show them sure. the artery. But in clinical practice, absolutely, you need to show them the artery yes. and tell them that their pain is going to go away. Yes. And any odd little bits of minor pain that are not exertional and not typical are not due to this blockage. You look at that. It's like a freeway on a you know uh, yes. Sunday morning early. Look how freely the blood is flowing. <laughs> um, and yeah. Uh, yeah. they should be reassured. And, and that's, that's right, because that's right. Um, we've done what we can technically which contributes that little minority benefit. The milk uh, powder. And now yeah. we do the placebo, the which water. is actually very important because our job, I think of it as my job, to enable people to get on with their life and not to spend their life in hospital yes. worrying about their body. Yes. So I'm happy to get people to worry about things that they can do something about. 
but worrying about things that you can't do something about. It's, you remember the experiment with the rats? Um, the, the, you put two rats in side by side cages. Yes. And you give one of them a thing that they can do, like a button. Yes. To press. And if they press the lever, they get a treat. They don't get electric. Oh, no, they don't, they don't, oh, they get, don't get electrocuted. Electric okay, sure. Yeah. You, you play a crueler is, experiment. Okay, go on. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> so this, uh, it's, a, it's an electric shock which comes on randomly, but if they press the button, then they can prevent the shock. In the next cage is another rat who gets exactly the same shock, but he doesn't have a lever. So both rats get the same amount of shocks, controlled entirely by the first rat's behavior. But it's the second rat that dies of stress. I see. Yes. Because there's nothing they can do, do to stop the <laughs> thing. Random stuff just happens. To yes. And that's, that, that's really what stress is. When, mm. um, you know, uh, the same thing that when we go, uh, when we get stressed at work or stuck in a traffic jam or something versus getting stressed on a roller coaster yes. in a fairground, you actually pay money to be stressed. <laughs> right. Exactly. In yes. A roller yeah. Coaster. Because it's on that you choose, then it's fine. It's fun. It's exciting. Yeah? Yes. But when it is somebody forcing you to do something or you having to have an operation, that is unpleasant. Uh, kind of probably the same hormone, whatever they are, yes. but they, they act in a different way on the brain and they make you uh, worse. Uh, so my job, I feel, is to get them to stress about stuff that matters. So if they smoke, I tell them they're a bad person or a war criminal. <laughs> Um, and that absolutely must stop. But then I don't tell them, you know, um, exactly how many bowls of kale they need to eat sure, today. Sure. I never advise people on diet. As, uh, oh, yes, because... Unless they're obviously more overweight than me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have a hypocrisy detector that comes on. But, okay, you know, yeah. I give them a limited list yes. of things. L- yes, focus on what matters, do, yes. Which actually does matter and is achievable. Because if you start giving too long a list, yes. then A, people get fed up and do nothing. Yes, or they course. say, my doctor gave me 25 things to do. I'm doing 15 of them. Yes, it's a 15 So I'm that, doing quite well. But yeah. no, that don't matter. That don't matter one bit. <laughs> yeah. oh, last question for you, because I know our time is running out. Um, this is a question about the types of doctors there are. Now, there's some doctors, um, we all have things we like to do, um, but no. if you came to me and you found something that I had been doing for many years and you showed me that I was doing it based on an uncontrolled observational study and you have a clear, big randomized trial, well done, well executed, and it doesn't do what I thought it did, I'm going to be a little bit embarrassed, maybe a little sheepish, but I'm going to say, you know, I was wrong. Let's not be wrong any further. I can limit my wrongness to the past and I don't have to be wrong in the future. Um, and there, and there are a few people like that who are, I think, willing to course correct and change. There's some doctors out there who you show them the new information. You're wrong. Um, what you thought was mistaken. Here's a more parsimonious way to explain why you might've felt mistaken, but you were turned out to be wrong. And then they'll say, let me get back to you. And, um, like one of the early models of the solar system, they will construct a very complicated apparatus (laughs) that explains like your trial is actually wrong. And what I originally believed is actually right and every planet is revolving around every planet and the sun isn't at the center and they construct this model and they say here you go see this is a better explanation of the universe than your thing so i guess my question is what is it about us why 
Why do some of us accept that the sun is at the center and others of us build this model to reunite all these disparate observations in a convoluted way? I, I hadn't thought about that. What is the determinant? And I think it's probably the amount we have invested in the old model, mm-hmm. on, you know, the Earth at the center of the uh, universe. Because if we are new in medicine or indeed outside medicine, um, it's relatively easy to interpret data. Um, the more you get socialized into a way of doing things, everyone you speak to thinks the same way, not because they're evil, nasty people, yeah. but that's, you know, why would you be putting all this effort to learn to do a procedure, to learn to do a thing, uh, if it wasn't good? Yeah. And we are unable to separate, as I said, the, you know, I have put in a lot of effort. I'm a good person. I only do good things that I believe are good. Uh, I um, have put a lot of effort into this. And they can't separate that from the possibility that the thing may not actually be as beneficial as you thought. Yeah. Um, but what I do with my PhD students is try and give them more than one hypothesis test. And if we're a clinician, we should... Uh, so if you have more than one hypothesis test... You recognize the hypothesis to which the answer is no, because it looks different. Yeah. And you're quite happy to say no, because this one worked and this one didn't, and that's different. If you only have one hypothesis, your entire future depends on it. You actually blank out all possibility that the answer might be no. Yes. And particularly if you don't have a supportive boss yes. who, you know, says, look, we're doing this experiment, whichever way it comes, it's going to be interesting. If they have an answer in mind, which is the only way you can get your PhD, uh, it's very stressful for the students. And I think that's why sometimes think, you know, people end up being um, sort of economical with the truth yes. uh, in, the, uh, uh, in, in, in their reports. Um, for doctors, I think it's similar. If you do 20 different procedures, if someone says one of them is a bit crap, you go, all right, uh, I guess I'll do the other 19. Right. Um, uh, but if you do one and you vaunt it as the fact that you can do this makes you godlike. Yes. And, uh, is the thing you're raison d'etre. Then it's actually quite different. Yes. Um, and I don't know of an easy way around it. Um, yeah. That's precisely so, what I think. I think it's yeah. if you have one tool in your tool bag, yes. you're going to yeah. guard that tool. So it's good to yeah. have at least three tools in there. So you got two yeah, other tools. Absolutely. Yeah. We need to teach, train people to do more than one thing. More than one thing. So, for example, with um, uh, in imaging, I only know echo and I don't know MRI. Sure. Um, and so it is very tempting for me to sit in meetings with my MRI colleagues and tell them, ah, you know, so I would say, oh, yeah. How's the MRI scan? Oh, yeah. I just went up to ITU and echoed a patient. Uh, are you going to be bringing your MRI scanner along? <laughs> just annoy them. And then yeah. they say, oh, yeah. We just showed you. Look at this. It's like 3D with all this stuff. Are yeah. you going to do that with that? With that? So, we, so we actually have people like Graham who does all of them. Yes. And so he can talk intelligently without being part of any one um, like campaign yes. bashing the other. Yeah. And uh, that it's only people who are not um, threatened by something that can make a reasonable, um, view on it. Yes. I think. And, and also maybe we can repeat people that if you have a technique that you're using for assessing disease X and it's good for that. Yes, it's good to explore whether it's useful for disease Y, but if the answer is no, just say no. It's yes. fine. It really is okay. It's not your job to bang the drum for every possible procedure or test. And uh, feel bad about finding, discovering that it's not very good. 
Yeah. That, that's the message I give to people. You know, if you are involved in clinical practice, you have, if I tell people, you have two hats, clinical hat and a research, research hat. hat. Yeah. With your clinical hat, you're putting on the placebo with maximum power. Yes. You're using all, you know, you report the images based on every piece of data you can get in their back history. That is why people write the clinical yes. details. Well, yes. They're putting it in there to bias you. I mean, yes. that's why yes. they write the <laughs> you, you choose to report an echo if you don't know what the, what the patient has. Yes. So you're insisting on being biased. But then when you go to the other other half of the day you're doing research, you have to put on your research hat in which you have a null hypothesis in which you, you say, right, I strongly believe that um, this drug benefits this, but I am going to uh, test it, you know, as dispassionately as possible. So one thing I tell my young researchers is imagine that you're studying disease X. So you're studying disease X. Imagine that um, actually your mother has disease X mm. and she's dying from it. Mm-hmm. And so your only reason to study disease X is to find useful treatments for yes. it. You're not interested in publication, impact factor, PhD joining. Yes. All you care is the result is correct. Yes. So that's the right attitude. Unfortunately, yeah. you have to go to Antarctica for one year for military service. Uh, uh, so you're going to have to let that Dr. Prasad uh, do the project for you. And <laughs> trouble with him is, you know, all of his results come out a bit positive. Yes. So I'm not saying that he's a cheeky boy, but it is a bit mysterious. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So what, and we can't say anything uh, because, uh, you know, we, we're very nice people. So what I'm going to do is ask yes. you to write a protocol that even Vinay Prasad could carry out. I see. So yes. If the treatment doesn't work, yes. it, it's going to be fine. And so, and so they'll think, okay, right, what I'm going to do is get you know, Vinay to do the scan, but Bob to do the yes. uh, reporting, yes. and I'll yes. get someone else to do that. Right. But then I say, right. Now, good news, Antarctica is off, yes. but I think you should yeah. still do the Vinay Prasad Yes, that's the right way. That's the right way. Well, Dr. Francis, it's a pleasure talking with you, on, and finally great to get you. And um, I, I guess I'd say, you know, uh, Francis Industries and Vindustries, my corporation, we, we will open our COVID long-term follow-up clinic, and I will be happy to consult on the long-term anticoagulation issues, which obviously will yes. will play a role for yeah. obviously decades to I, come, and you can yeah. focus on the heart and how... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, how we should yeah, keep an eye I on these patients. We shouldn't limit it. We should do the long-term COVID, but also for the people who have not had COVID, who've just been exposed to the trauma of it. Just even he, I mean, her, proper, yeah, of course. That's a much bigger business. I mean, a much bigger... Uh, um, um, unmet, uh, need. Uh, unmet, unmet need. Unmet need. Unmet <laughs> need. <laughs> <laughs> Thank well, you very much. Pleasure Bruno. to see you. <laughs> Thank you. Bye. You've been listening to Season 3 of Plenary Session. Plenary Session is produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. The views expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it, and no one else. Plenary Session is not medical advice. Follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. Until next time.